Our reading this morning is uh, from the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Galatians, reading from chapter 4, from verse 8 through to verse 11. Galatians chapter 4, reading from verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This morning, we'll be looking at four verses on this Good Friday. If you're new to us, my name is Dave Furman. I serve this church as the senior pastor. And if you missed the announcements earlier, I encourage you to flip to the back of the bulletin if you're new to fill out the visitor page. You could pass that off to our connections table on your way out. You can hand it to me or any of the ushers at the doors. We'll also be celebrating communion this morning as we remember the significance of this day, of this Good Friday that marks the death of Christ. And as a reminder again, our Easter sunrise service is on Sunday morning at the beach. You'll find more information in our bulletins. Bring food to share. It's a breakfast potluck after we celebrate our service and, and a time of baptism. So please join us on the beach as we celebrate this king who not only died for us, but indeed was risen on the third day, proving that the sacrifice was indeed complete. Well, if you do have your Bibles, please turn with me again to the book of Galatians. We'll be looking at chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, which Rod just read for us this morning. Well, I had a very brief but productive trip to the United States last week. I was at a conference with about 7,500 other pastors and church leaders from around the world. And what we gathered together for was to come around the topic of evangelism. Much needed and of much help to me. Uh, One of our elders, Max Stiles, led an incredible seminar on what it could look like to build a culture of evangelism in the local church. And my soul was filled on this trip, and so as I had a few hours on the flight home, uh, I was thinking and I was praying for you. I was praying for you who would be in attendance at our services this Easter weekend. Now, Easter is certainly an important weekend on the church's calendar. One of my earliest memories as a Christian was actually at our Easter sunrise services. My very first pastor used to actually end his Easter services by looking out to the congregation. And he would say at the very end, he would say, see you at Christmas. Now he did that to make a point. His point is that many people will only come to our church service on Easter and Christmas. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you've come to to visit this church. Maybe you've come for the first time since Christmas. That's fine. I want to tell you that I'm glad that you're here. I'm really glad that you've come today. And I want to tell you that it's not an accident that you joined us. I want to be clear from the outset, it's not an accident that you've joined us. Maybe you've heard people say in the past that they have had a divine appointment or or a divine appointment that has happened in their life. And when they say that, they've noticed something special, something that God has done. 
Well, since God is sovereign, we've seen that throughout the book of Galatians, since God is sovereign and in control over everything, then you could say that there is nothing that is not a divine appointment. So it's no mere coincidence that you're in this room, in this hotel, in this city, at this very hour. You are here by divine decree. Ultimately, you're not here because a neighbor invited you, or a family member brought you, a friend met you. No, you're here at the drawing of a holy and loving God who longs to reveal himself to you in such a way that your life is transformed beyond the cultural traditions of, well, this is what we do on Easter weekend. No, God planned for you to be in this place. He planned for you to hear the good news about Jesus Christ today, in this place, this very hour. It's an evidence of God's grace and God's mercy and God's pursuit of you. And so I want to lay my cards out on the table for you in this very uh, beginning of this sermon. I want to tell you that if you haven't gathered with the church for a while, here's exactly what I prayed for you on the plane earlier this week and what I've been praying for you this entire week. And it's this. I prayed that today you would see Jesus for who he truly is. That you would see him as the crucified, as the risen, as the reigning Savior. That he is the one who died not because he deserved to die. Not because he couldn't escape the clutches of the chief priests and soldiers. But that he deliberately, intentionally set his face towards Jerusalem. And because of joy, he endured the cross to save sinners. I pray that you would get addicted to knowing and learning and hearing about Jesus. That you would even go take a free Bible from our connections table if you don't own one. And that you would start reading the Bible and getting to know this Jesus who died. I pray that you would see that God's presence is among his people here today. And that you would come back again and again and again to join us. And most of all... My greatest prayer on the plane and throughout this week as I prepared this sermon and as I prayed for this very hour, my greatest prayer was that if you don't know Jesus, that you would turn to him in faith today. That you would understand that all of us are sinners. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. Every single person that's ever walked on the face of the earth, that we have sinned against a holy God. And the Bible says that we are condemned to death and judgment because of that. That none of us are exempt from sin. Born sinners, we continue in sin. And because he's holy, because he's perfect, because he rules and reigns the universe, the Bible says that the wages of that sin is death for every last one of us, from Adam and Eve until today. And yet what Good Friday and Easter signifies is good news. In fact, it's the best news that God has taken our place, that Jesus Christ God became man. He became flesh and he lived the life that you and I couldn't even live for one hour. He lived perfectly. And then he died the death that we deserved. He went to the cross and he died. God himself took our punishment. He marched to his crucifixion. He marched to death. He gave himself up as the living sacrifice so that all those who would turn from their sin and believe in Christ, would be saved. Friend, that's the best news you could ever hear. And this is your first time in a church gathering. If this is your first time in a gathering since Christmas, if this is the first time 
you're in a gathering in a long time, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, that's how you know him. You turn to him in faith that he died for you. My friend, I may never have met you. I may never have seen you before today. But my prayer is that today you would know Christ. So I'm laying my cards on the table. I'm being completely open and honest. This is what I've prayed this week, is that if you don't know Christ, you would know him today. And if you're here and you're a Christian, maybe you come every week, maybe you're a member of this church, maybe you're involved in the community group, you study the Bible with other Christians, you're discipling, you're sharing your faith, maybe all that is true for you. My prayer for you today, this hour, is that you'd push the pause button on your life for a few minutes. That whatever thoughts and pressures are distracting you at this very moment, that they would fade away and that you would recalibrate your life, your heart. That you would renew your mind by his word and his spirit. And this would encourage you to walk more closely with Jesus. So to that end, let's pray and ask for God's word to pierce our hearts. Let's pray together. Oh Father, on this day that marks the death of Christ, would you open our eyes to see Jesus rightly this morning? As a sacrificial lamb who came to take away our sins, would we treasure Jesus above all else? Oh, Father, would this be our aim today? Would those who don't know you come to know you? Would those who know you, would we more deeply treasure you above all things in our lives, above everything that may be distracting us? Even now, oh God, would we come to treasure you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've been with us for the past several weeks in Galatians, we've seen some repetition, haven't we? We've seen Paul time and time again tell us that Jesus is the way for salvation. That Jesus is the only way for salvation. That it's not by works. It's not by legalism. It's not by trying harder. It's not by doing better than the person sitting next to us. We've seen that salvation is not anything we could do, but what Jesus has done for us. But Paul continues to move us through, the, through his letter by showing us this truth in different ways. He wants us to get it and never forget it. Well, today he addresses another threat in the Galatian church. They were at risk of going back to their idolatrous ways. And friends, we face the same peril today. So let's take heed lest we fall. Let me give you the main point of the sermon in one sentence up front. If you're taking notes, here's the the main point this morning over these four verses. It's don't go back to idols because Jesus is everything you need. Friends, don't go back to idols because Jesus is everything you need. We'll break that one sentence down into two points or sections. First, a strong warning. We'll see Paul gives the Galatians and he gives us a strong warning. And then second, a new reality. A warning and a reality. First, a strong warning. That's the first part of the main point that I read for you. Don't go back to idols. Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul says, Galatian church, before you were Christians, you were idolaters. You worship those that are not God. 
These false gods were everywhere. If you were traveling by sea, you wanted to appease Poseidon so you got there safely. If you wanted to become pregnant, you'd go to the fertility god. If you wanted to get married, you'd go to Aphrodite. You'd make sacrifices. You'd hope that this god would provide for you. Well, Paul here in these verses doesn't deny their existence. He only denies that they have a nature which qualifies them to be called God. In 1 Corinthians 10, he makes clear that these, what these false gods are. He says, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. That was Paul's address to the Corinthians. In the past, Paul is saying these Galatians were enslaved to demons who exercised their power through their religious practices. Well, these false gods didn't deliver what they promised. They are demons. They don't offer life. They only promote death. Idolatry can only ever always overpromise and underdeliver. They are powerless against Jesus. In the Gospels, when you see demons and Jesus confronts them, they don't argue back. They submit to Jesus. Jesus never goes up to a, to a demon-possessed person and says, Get out of the man. And the demon's like, no, I I think I'm just going to hang out right here for a while. No, that never happens. The demonic, even in force, even in bulk, when they are are at legion, they're terrified of Jesus Christ. There isn't some kind of dualism going on in the Bible between Jesus and the demons or Jesus and Satan. We never wonder wonder who's going to win. Jesus always wins. Now, the Galatians, before they became Christians, the Galatians were enslaved to these false gods who Paul says are not really gods at all. They're of the demonic. They're demons and they're going to lose. And Paul gives them a further warning, verse 9 on through verse 11. He says, But now that you have come to know God, or, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul is stunned. He's astonished. Why would anyone who's been adopted, brought into a new family, want to go back to work for the devil in slavery? In the last passage, we saw that the Galatians had the privilege of calling God Abba Father. This most personal, most intimate name, Abba Father, as a true child of God. Imagine a baby girl living in an orphanage somewhere. A man and a woman come for a visit. They look in a crib. They see this baby girl and they fall in love with her and they adopt her and they take her into their home and they love them and they raise them up and care for her. No, friend, that adoption is a small picture of the love God has for all his sons and daughters in Christ. Anyone who receives such grace, such undeserved favor, could never want to leave and go back to the orphanage. Yet this is exactly what the Galatians were trying to do. And Paul, he can't believe it. He's astonished. Instead, the Galatians were turning back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. It was like deja vu. They're going back to their religious ABCs, to the law. And although they had graduated to faith in Jesus Christ, they were re-enrolling for spiritual kindergarten. 
Now, on first reading of these verses, we expect from verses 8 and 9 that the Galatians had resumed worship of false gods like Zeus and Epaphrodite. But verse 10 explains that their setback manifests itself in an observance of the Jewish calendar. Now, here's what's so astounding about what Paul says. Maybe you didn't catch it. The Galatians used to be pagan idol worshipers. We get that. Now they're becoming more moral and more religious. But that's the danger. Before they were giving in the temple prostitution. Their licentious sexual lives. They were greedy. They were worshiping these false gods. Laying down sacrifices to Zeus. To others. Now they've gone another direction. And they're faithfully obedient to a rigorous program of biblical details. As a way of seeking to earn God's favor. And Paul says something incredible. He looks back at their old paganism, he looks at their new following of the law, and he says, you're just going back to where you were. Did you catch that? It's astounding. I don't know how else to say it. It's scandalous that Paul would say, sexual sin, worshiping Zeus, is enslaving. It's terrible, but just as enslaving and just as dangerous as is what you're doing now. He just said, I fear you're about to go back to slavery by the worship of demons. Except he's not now making reference to their former paganism. He's making reference to days and weeks and seasons and years. To Judaism, to Jewish practices of holiness. Here's why this is stunning. Because apparently Paul equates living under the law with a reversal back to paganism. Paul's saying you can be enslaved to demons, not just through acts of paganism, but you're in the same kind of slavery when you hold to days, meaning they observe the Sabbath and wouldn't work that day as a way of earning God's favor. Two months, they celebrated the new moon that began each Jewish month. Seasons, meaning Jewish festival celebrations, and years, celebrating the Jewish New Year. Now, Paul isn't saying that any and all holidays are evil. That's not what he's doing. There have been people in church history who have actually done this. They've actually said holidays are evil. The English Puritans who moved to uh, the Americas, called the Pilgrims, they actually believe this. They came for religious freedom, and they wouldn't celebrate any holidays, even Christmas. They viewed it as just another day, and they would go to work just like always, not even reference that it was a holiday. And so how did the Pilgrims get rewarded 150 years later? Well, by the United States creating a holiday in honor of the harvest given to them. Thanksgiving. It's incredibly ironic. But see, the problem was never the holidays. That's not what Paul is saying. The problem is that the Galatians were using the practicing of the holidays, the days, the weeks, the seasons, the years, as a means of gaining favor with God. That was the issue. Paul saying to the Galatians, you were once enslaved to demons via paganism, and I fear you're going to be enslaved to demons once again via religious observance if you don't stop and recalibrate your heart right now. The Galatians had turned to another idol, but an idol just the same. They were trusting in the idol of self-dependency, and they were at risk of trying to save themselves through these celebrations. An idol friends, is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Something in this world that you can't live without. Maybe it's a thing you own. 
Maybe it's another person. Maybe it's marital status or a portfolio mix. If there's anything by which you live for and depend on that is not God, that's an idol in your heart. If you want to understand the foundation and nature of idolatry, one of the most fascinating little hints is in the very last verse of the book of 1 John. In 1 John, what John is doing is he's writing a letter to Christians, and he gives a five-chapter description of what a Christian looks like. A Christian lives in the light. A Christian loves God and loves others. A Christian is one who grows in holiness. In a sense, it's a test. A Christian will exhibit a certain kind of fruit if, if they are truly a Christian. So he's doing all this. John's writing this whole five-chapter letter, and then he gets to the very end. He gets to the very, very end in chapter 5, verse 21. And he says this little phrase. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Now, there are two possibilities as to what this means. This is the very first time that word idols had appeared in 1 John. It's the first time even the concept had been brought up. So there's two possibilities. One possibility is suddenly at the very end, at the very, very end, John, being a terrible writer, goes through his entire five-chapter letter, and he finally realizes, oh, no, I, I can't believe I forgot to talk about idolatry. I, I left it out, and so I've got, I got to write it in. Uh, uh, keep yourself from idols. Goodbye. The end. Maybe John was just such a terrible writer. He forgot about this main point, this important point that he wanted to write about. So he just a little postscript, amen, goodbye, and he sends the letter off. But that's probably not what happened. Now, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones took 67 weeks to preach through the book of 1 John. You thought we were moving slow through Galatians. Well, that's really slow, 67 weeks. In his very last sermon, sermon number 67, he preached on that last phrase, on verse 21, chapter 5. And he said what was so astounding about that verse is that the only possible way to understand this is that John is giving us a summary of everything he's talked about already. Now, if it's a summary, then John is saying that if you ever fail to love God and others as you should, if you fail in any way, if you have any problem, it all comes from idolatry. Because to say, keep yourself from idols, is essentially a summary statement of everything else that he said in the book of 1 John. Lloyd-Jones goes on and says, The greatest danger that confronts us is not a matter of deeds or of actions, but, but it's a matter of idolatry in the heart. Because those actions are always the outcome of attitudes and thoughts deep down below the surface. This is why the Ten Commandments start the way they start. Have you ever thought about the layout of the Ten Commandments? The first two are both concerned with idolatry. Have no other gods before me. Make no graven images. What Lloyd-Jones said was that if you ever break Commandments 3 through 10, it's because you've broken Commands 1 and 2. Idolatry is the original Genesis 3 sin, the Genesis 3 lie, that I must go around God instead of to God in order to find life, validation, hope, purpose, meaning, and joy. It's our temptation to go around God, to go to something else other than God, and not to go directly to God, the giver of all good things. For the Galatians, their new idol was performance according to the law. Now, how can this be an idol in the same way as their earlier paganism? 
Because Paul is saying that you can either be your own Lord and Savior through your work, maybe an idol of work, or you make an idol out of sex, or you make an idol out of your body, or you make an idol out of family. You can do any of those things, make any of those things supreme in your life ahead of God. And in all those ways, what you're doing is you're being your own Lord and Savior. You're deciding what's right, you're deciding what's wrong, and what will fulfill you. And all of that is a refusal to accept God's grace. You're trying to save yourself. That's why becoming very religious as a way to set things right and get yourself some peace of mind is also idolatry. It's the same thing. Instead of following Christ, you're following a set of rules. The rules will save you, and when you follow them, you have a peace of mind. When you break them, you're, you're in turmoil, you're in despair, you're enslaved to the law. Paul says if it's to earn God's favor, it's idolatry, it's slavery, it's paganism. And he says, if you don't get this, then I have labored over you in vain. Galatians, if you step back into paganism, I've wasted my time. I should never have opened my mouth. You just didn't get it. All you've done, Galatians, is move from one form of slavery to another. Do you see what this means for us now? There's a way to follow the law of God so that Satan is cheering you on. Satan is legalism's biggest cheerleader. It's totally fine with Satan if you follow God's laws, provided that you take credit for those that you follow well. In fact, he'll assist your moral resolve if you'll do it that way. Satan doesn't mind if you come to church. He doesn't mind if you teach Redeemer kids. He doesn't mind if you give money to the offering. He doesn't mind if you preach. He doesn't mind if you serve the poor He's all in favor of whatever your moral agenda is, provided you rely on yourself instead of the Spirit of Christ and take credit for it yourself instead of humbly giving all glory and honor and praise to God. Just consider Jesus' story of the two brothers in Luke 15, sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son or the lost sons. In the parable, the father has two sons. He has one son who wants his inheritance now, was, was greedy, was mean. He gets his inheritance and he goes out to live a licentious life. He squanders all of the money living in the depth of sin and depravity. And yet one day he realizes he must go back. And he goes back and he, he eventually he repents and the father brings him in. And they celebrate. If you remember that parable, there's another son There's the elder son. See, both sons wanted control of the father's wealth, but were alienated from the father's heart. In the end, the elder son is looking from the outside, and he sees the younger son come in, and he sees that he's celebrated. And the elder son has this righteous, unrighteous indignation. He's so angry, so angry that his dad would celebrate his son while he would stand outside and not be celebrated for all the good work that he's done over all the years. See, his elder brother had done everything to the T, had followed all of his father's rules, had been, quote, what he thought was a good son. But he didn't want the father, he wanted the father's stuff. See, if anything, the idolatry and slavery of religion is more dangerous than the idolatry and slavery of irreligion because it's less obvious. The irreligious person, he knows he's far from God. I mean, this lost son, this this, uh, prodigal son, he went out. He knew he was far from God. He chose to do it. He squandered his dad's everything. He went out and he he just did it. He knew he was far from God. The elder son, this religious son, he was there with the father. He was close to the father. He was in the father's presence. And he had no idea he was far away from the father. 
He was so close, yet he was so far. See, the irreligious person knows they're far from God. The religious person has no idea. This is why Paul says in these verses that he has fear for the Galatians. They were taking on special days, months, seasons, and years. They were religiously observing all the festivals and ceremonies of the Old Testament. And this new slavery to non-gods would even be worse than the old. Just like the elder brother in the parable, they wouldn't know they were far away from the father. Friend, for those of you who come from Christian backgrounds, this is a temptation for you. The dangers so many of us are in today is that many of us think we know God and have no idea that we actually don't know him. We are far too easily deceived. We think we do know him because we follow and know his rules. We equate knowing God to our own moral behavior. We equate it to church attendance. Maybe we equate it to coming to a church service this Easter weekend. Perhaps we equate it to being better than other people. Maybe we equate it to living a relatively moral life. Maybe we equate it to being born in a Christian home. Maybe you equate it to thinking, well, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a pagan, I don't offer sacrifices to false gods, so I come from this Christianized country, so I guess I'm a Christian. When we equate it to those things, we're looking at the wrong standard. The text here is saying what's happening, men and women, is that you're enslaved, Galatians. You're enslaved to elementary principles, to the law, ultimately to demons. Friends, what idols are you in most danger of serving? As you check your own heart today, as you diagnose your own heart, what things in your life have you put in the place of God? What idols are you in most danger of serving? What idols are you serving? Are you like the Galatians of old? Have you come to Dubai to live the lie of Dubai? Eat, drink, spend, buy, flaunt, enjoy your money in this parentheses of your life. When you have finally come to your own, you're living the life you have always felt like you deserved. And so you are living it up because you tell yourself, well, I've earned it, I deserve it, and so I'm going to live in this way. This is my time, this is my money, this is my dues. Maybe on the flip side, are you like... The new Galatians, are you tempted with trusting in your religious performance and moral life to save you? Do you think that by being here today, you have somehow earned points with God that will help you get to heaven or give you benefits in this life? Do you think you're a Christian because you come from a so-called Christianized country, or your parents are a Christian, or because you're a nice person? Friends, if you're banking on any of these things to save you, Paul says you're in slavery and you aren't really free. You need a new reality to take place in order to become a Christian. That's the second point in the sermon today. A new reality. We've seen a strong warning. Paul gives us a strong and stern warning. Don't go back to those idols. Now what he gives us is a new reality. Jesus is everything you need. Jesus is everything you need. Don't go back to those idols because Jesus, Jesus Christ is everything you need. And we see in these verses, Paul tells us two things regarding those who become Christians. Two realities. First, that God knew us. That God knew us. I love verse 9 as I studied it this past week or two. I think it's 
one of my new favorite verses in the Bible. I have a lot of favorite verses, but I love this verse because Paul writes, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. It's as if Paul is writing this letter. He writes, you have come to know God. And all of a sudden he stops in his tracks and he realizes, well, wait a minute, I actually haven't explained the whole truth. I've missed out on some of the truth. And he adds that phrase. Did you catch it when we, re- when we read it earlier? He adds that phrase, or rather to be known by God. I love that phrase. Paul clarifies a life-altering, perspective-shifting, mind-boggling distinction. It was God who first knew us. God found you. Now, I sometimes hear Christians say, I have found the Lord. Have you ever heard that? I have found the Lord. Hallelujah. And I marvel that God was lost. God wasn't lost, friends. You were lost. I was lost. God found you because he knew you from all eternity. God chose sovereignly to come to know you. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ to save you, God knew you. And to know is not just an intellectual knowing, although it is that. It's a verb that refers to the choosing of someone by the setting of affection upon someone. To know someone is to enter into a personal relationship with the person. And Paul says that what makes you a Christian is that God has set his love on you. Isn't that beautiful? That God has set his affection on you. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 3 says, If anyone loves God, he is known by God. God's knowing of us is fixed and solid. Paul wants the Galatians to remember this. If you were known by God, how can you go back to the idolatrous ways of the past? How could you go back from the family of God into the orphanage? How can you leave the grace of God and go back to the law? Why is this an antidote to idolatry? Paul wants them to understand that in the gospel, we see that we don't need to make ourselves beautiful or lovable or acceptable to God. He already knows us. Ephesians 1 says he knew us before the foundations of the world and he chose us in him, not just before we were born, but before anything was created. You were on God's mind. He chose to know you, to set his affections on you before anything was even created. He chose us, he made us, he knew us, he brought us to himself. It was at his initiative. 1 John chapter 4 says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We didn't find God through our moral obedience. Well, as one theologian says, we are like blinded rats lost in the labyrinth of sin Until by God's amazing grace, we who were all lost in the maze of self-justification are truly and everlastingly found. Christian, you were lost in a tangled web of your sin with no way out and no idea of where to go, and God found you. Christian friend, don't ever lose the amazement that God found you and chose you and knows you. 
Oh, how wonderful to contemplate that you are known by God. It's an earth-shattering truth that will help you in your temptation to fall back into idolatry. Jonathan Edwards, the great North American theologian, used to say that when he got to heaven, there would be three things that would surprise him. The people that were there, the people that aren't there, and the fact that he was. That was an understanding of his depravity and sin and the wonder of God's love. Friends, the longer I live by the grace of God, the more amazed I am that God would choose to know and love me. The way for us to keep and to avoid the Galatians' folly is to heed Paul's words. Let God's word keep telling us who and what we are in Christ. One of the great purposes of daily Bible reading, meditation, and prayer is not to earn God's favor. It's not to be legalistic. But it's to get our hearts and minds properly oriented to remember who and what we are. That's why we read our Bibles regularly, to remind ourselves. This is one of the reasons we consistently emphasize gathering with other believers to study the Bible here at Redeemer. This is why we started our weekly inductive Bible study in the book of Ephesians this last Wednesday night. As Philip Van Steenberg led and and our congregation participated, I was reminded in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, that I've been saved and empowered for ministry by the will of God. That He planned it, that He purposed it, and that He made it happen. My salvation and this ministry, it was an incredible encouragement to be with those other believers and to look at the scriptures. Incredible encouragement as I fought my own discouragement in sermon preparation. John Newton, the great hymn writer of Amazing Grace, he did this well. He was involved in unspeakable atrocities in the African slave trade. He was a slave trader. And then at 23 years of age, he was on a ship one day. A terrible storm overtook the ship. And he cried out at 23 years of age, cried out to God for mercy to save him. And God did. And in that moment, he was converted. Not just because he was physically saved. He in that moment realized his sin and he turned to Christ to save him. He was converted. And he vowed and and to never forget how God had mercy on him. And so in order to imprint it in his memory, he had Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15, written in bold letters, and he put it over his mantelpiece in his study. I shall remember that I was a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed me. Christian friend, don't ever forget it. Not just on Good Friday, not just on Fridays, but every day. Don't ever forget it, that God knew you and he loves you. You are adopted. Just like the little girl early in the sermon, the girl was adopted and calls the man father because he's her dad. But she knows him as father only because he first knew her as his daughter. Do you see how God knowing you reassures you today? Do you see how remembering that God knows you frees you from the temptation to worship idols? You no longer have to fight for other people's approval because God approves of you in Christ. You no longer worry about whether people know your name or know who you are because you're known by the only one that really matters, God himself. And he knew you from long ago. And he will know you forever. 
You now do good works in response to the grace God shows you as thanksgiving, not as a means of getting something from God. You live not to get more of God's stuff, but to get more of God. Christian, you are known by God, and this truth changes everything. But we must also know God. That's why Paul wasn't wrong in the first part of his verse. We are known by God, but we must also know God. Our conversion is initiated, ordained, planned, and brought to fruition by God alone, but we must respond. In conversion, he always moves us to respond by knowing him. Friends, ultimately, you have to know God. So here's the question I want to ask everyone. I want everyone to ask themselves today. Before you leave this room, in a minute we'll celebrate communion as Christians will sing a couple final songs. But if you're here today, and all of you are indeed here today, I want you to ask yourself this question. Have I actually placed my faith in Christ to save me and have been born again? Have I actually placed my faith, personally, have I placed my faith in Jesus to save me? And have I been born again? That means save. That means regenerate. It means God changes our life. We see him clearly that he is the Savior. Turn from our sins. Turn either from our licentious living like the prodigal son or from our law abidance for salvation like the elder brother. That we have turned to God personally, ourselves, not because our parents did it, not because People in the church did it, not because our friends did it, not because we come from that country, but because I personally have placed my faith in Christ. See, to become a Christian, you must have repented and believe in Jesus. Now, you may not remember your born-again birthday, the day you were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and brought to eternal life. If you're a Christian here, you may not remember that day. Perhaps you were a small child. You don't recall when your life was changed. Knowing the exact date and time is not nearly as important as this one thing. Are you trusting him now? Do you believe in Christ to save you? Are you trusting Christ still? Are you clinging to him by faith through grace as you turn from your sin? Do you trust in Christ alone to save you from death and give you eternal life? Have you rejected everything? anything else but Jesus to save you. Oh friend, if you have not done that and you find yourself here today, like I said, it's no accident you're hearing this message. If you haven't done that yet today, friend, you need Jesus. No other way for me to say it except you need Jesus. You need to be saved. You can do this today, this Friday, right from your seat because it's nothing you need to go do physically. But it's a change in the posture of your heart. Did you rely on Jesus and not yourself? If you've done this today, please come talk to me after the service. Talk to any of our ushers. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to to help you in your walk with God. We'd love to point you in the right direction regarding your next steps. So when you become a Christian, you now live in light of a new reality. You now experience the saving grace of God. This is the truest way of fighting idolatry is because when you know the true God and experience his love, everything else fades in comparison. Do you know this God? Friend, do you know him? Or is your life filled with impersonal actions for God that masquerade as a relationship with God? Paul's most worried that the Galatians... He's most worried about the Galatians because they looked like good Christians. 
On the outside, the Galatians looked like they were doing a good job. And yet they were on the verge of punting God's grace and trusting in themselves. Don't make the same mistake. This was John Wesley, the great hymn writer, the great author. It was John Wesley in his postgraduate Oxford days. He was the member of something called the Holy Club. They actually called themselves that, which is the first sign that something suspect was going on. I now want to call yourselves the Holy Club, but they did. Wesley was the son of a pastor. Wesley was a pastor himself. He practiced religion. He did lots of good works. He had the Holy Clubbers visit inmates in prison. They visited the sick. They served the poor in Oxford. They pitied the slum children. They fed them food. They gave them clothes. They even tutored them. They observed Saturday Sabbath as well as Sunday, double Sabbath. They were double Sabbatarians. I don't know if that's even a term. I just made that up. But that's what they did. They went above and beyond with everything that they did. They're like, one Sabbath's not good enough. Let's do two. Serving the poor is not good enough. Let's just do everything to take care of them. And they'd go out into the world above and beyond. They fasted often. They prayed at great length. They searched the scriptures. All good things. And yet years later, John Wesley, in his own words, wrote this. I had even then the faith of a servant and not that of a son. Well, he goes on to say that he finally came to trust in Christ and in Christ alone for salvation years later and was given an inward assurance that his sins had finally been taken away. Paul gives us a strong warning today. Christianity is a religion of sons and daughters, not slaves to idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't go back to idols because Jesus is everything you need. Oh friend, let that be the truth that we contemplate this morning as we approach the communion table. As we take part in this ordinance of the Christian church, let that be a reminder to us today. That we are saved only by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. As we celebrate this ordinance, as we celebrate communion this morning, you need to know that this is a meal for Christians. It's a meal for those who are living a life of repentance and fellowship with God. If you claim to be a follower of Christ and are holding on to some sin for which you refuse to repent, let the bread, let the cup pass you by this morning. And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian... If you have not repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ for salvation, I'd encourage you to think about this message, to think about the message of the cross, that Christ died on the cross to save sinners from their sin. But let the bread and let the cup pass you by as this is a meal for Christians. Paul gives us a stern warning again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone, anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Well, let's now take a moment in silent reflection to remember what Jesus has done and to reflect on our own lives to see if we may take part in communion in a manner honorable to God. Let's do that now. Now as the servers and musicians come up to the front, 
Let us go to him in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are constantly under pressure and temptation to turn from you and to look to the idols of our hearts. If it's not lust and greed and pride and self-sufficiency, then we have even spun good things like prayer and Bible reading and church attendance and made them like tokens we put into a God-sized vending machine to earn favor with you or to get things from you. Father, in this way, we are like lost sheep who are always at risk of running astray. Father, as we partake of communion today, would you remind us that our soul's true delight can only be found in you. That our salvation was found in Christ alone. That he walked to the cross to pay the penalty that we could never pay. Would we realize afresh that Jesus is everything we need for life and for godliness. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.